Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. spooktacular people welcome to this 485th episode of the history ghost bump podcast ghost tours for the theater of the mind i'm your host diane and this is kelly kelly we still have you here for right now but uh, the next couple episodes are probably going to be i'm shipping long out again distance. <laughs> <laughs> on this episode we're covering something that maybe a lot of people don't know about there was this nightclub called the coconut grove and it had this massive fire as a matter of fact this is the second deadliest nightclub fire ever in the U.S. So, of course, we have some ghosts in the wake of this. And there's probably a lot of people who looked at the title of this episode and went, that's not how you spell coconut. Well, it is how you spell coconut grove. C-O-C-O-A-N-U-T. Yeah, I chuckled when I first read the title because I thought you accidentally misspelled it. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are, all standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Tabitha, who has an A after the B, Ingrid, Kath, I believe this is Sinead, Brian, Kylie, and Kyle. Thank you so much for joining the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. Many of us have undoubtedly watched one of the six Ice Age movies circa 2002. When our sons were young, they loved the character Scrap, a saber-toothed squirrel who was always getting himself into precarious predicaments while chasing after his beloved acorns. Although the depiction of this comical character may not be accurate. Back in 2018, there was a discovery of a 30,000-year-old fluffy furball in Canada that was determined to be an actual Ice Age squirrel. It definitely was not as cute and amusing as the movie's scrap. It was described as a mangled lump of mummified flesh. 
However, a recent re-examination of this fortuitous fuzzy, albeit funky, find uncovered a far more fascinating story. The poor creature was mummified during mid-hibernation and has been identified as an arctic ground squirrel. Amazingly, this ancient species still exists today, where the permafrost squirrel was discovered. The specimen will soon be on display at the Beringia Center in Canada. Although an incredible find, a species that existed 30,000 years ago being nearly identical to an existing animal species today certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? That's just silly. What you should be afraid of is the thing that watches you sleep. <laughs> and now, this month in history. In the month of May, on the 3rd in 1898, Golda Meir was born in Kiev within the Russian Empire. Her father emigrated to the United States for work in 1903, and in 1906, Golda and her family followed and settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. From a young age, Golda was a natural leader, organizing the American Young Sister Society, a fundraiser to pay for her classmates' textbooks in 1908. She graduated as her class's valedictorian. Golda was a driven woman and found many opportunities to lead in her community. Her marriage in 1917 had the precondition of settling in Palestine, after the conclusion of World War I, the couple moved to Palestine and were eventually accepted into Kibbutz Merhavia in the Jezreel Valley after an initial rejected application. Golda became a politician and served as the fourth Prime Minister of Israel from 1969 to 1974. She was Israel's first and only female head of government in the Middle East. Known by the moniker as the Iron Lady, she had the reputation for being down-to-earth and a very persuasive orator. Golda Meir also served as labor minister and foreign minister. Due to Israel's initial severe losses during the Yom Kippur War of 1973, Meir resigned following angry outcries by the public. Golda Meir died in 1978 due to lymphoma. The year was 1942 and World War II was raging. The Battle of Midway had recently turned the tide of the naval wars to the Allies, but there were still a few years left before the war would be over. Americans were looking for ways to distract themselves, and nightclubs fit the bill. The Coconut Grove in Boston started as a speakeasy and grew to become a very popular nightclub. That year, 1942, the nightclub burned to the ground with hundreds of patrons trapped inside. This would be the second deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history. And although the area where the club was once located has completely changed, the spirits have refused to leave the site of their tragic ends. Join us for the history and hauntings of the Coconut Grove Fire. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. 
The Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles opened in January of 1921. This was a lavish resort hotel that attracted a celebrity clientele. A few months after opening the hotel, the main ballroom was converted into a nightclub called the Coconut Grove. Before long, the Coconut Grove was world famous. This club inspired orchestra band leaders Mickey Albert and Jacques Renard to name their new club that they'd opened in Boston in 1927, the Coconut Grove. So you guys have probably heard of the Coconut Grove before, but it's probably the one in Los Angeles that a lot of people are familiar with. Both spelled the exact same way. Prohibition was in full force at the time, so this was a speakeasy that soon became a hangout for mafia gangs. Much of the financing came from California mobster and swindler Jack Berman. This early rendition of the club was located in a renovated brick and concrete garage and warehouse complex near the Boston Common. Albert wanted a Roaring Twenties-style nightclub. Over the years, rooms would be added so that the nightclub was a cluster of lounges, bars, and dining rooms with orchestral entertainment and dancing. The decor of the nightclub was fashioned on a South Seas theme. The walls were dingy, but patrons would never know because they were lined with imitation leather, rattan and bamboo, and satin linen draped down from the ceiling. There were pillars on the sides of the dance floor that resembled palm trees, and they had large paper palm fronds that extended out over the floor, and the light fixtures looked like coconuts. And yes, we said paper. Keep that in mind. Inside the main dining room was an elevated area nicknamed the Terrace that had wrought iron railings around it. This was treated like a VIP area. A narrow stairway led down to the basement where the Melody Lounge was located. This was an intimate area that was a bar with a singer and a piano on a small revolving stage. This was a very dark space with a bit of neon under the bar and one soft light in the center of the room. Albert and Renard eventually sold to Boston Charlie, who was a gangland bootlegger and boss named Charles King Solomon in 1931. The New York Times reported on January 25, 1933, that cabaret gunmen kill King Solomon. Boston racketeer is shot by four in Roxbury after ignoring a warning. So the mighty King Solomon was gunned down. And Kelly, it was in the bathroom of the Cotton Club. Oh, my. Oh, the indignity. (laughs) True. (laughs) And with that, his interest in ownership in the Coconut Grove passed to his lawyer, who was named Barnett Wolanski, whom everyone called Barney. Wolanski made many changes at the nightclub to keep a better eye on his bottom line. He liked money and he hated losing it. So he hired teenagers to work as busboys so that he could pay them a pittance. Street criminals were brought in to serve as bouncers, and emergency exits were all locked and hidden behind drapes or in the case of one of the doors, it was completely bricked up. Oh, my word. Malonsky didn't want anyone leaving before they paid their bill. And as we mentioned earlier, this club kept expanding and soon it was a hard maze of rooms to navigate. And because we're telling you all about these emergency exits being locked and hidden and everything else, didn't matter how big this club got. There's one entrance and one exit. Clearly, the listeners are cluing into some troubling issues in this club. Imagine all these circumstances with a confusing layout, hidden and locked exits, and flammable materials. On top of that, the mob had connections in the building department and licensing boards, so fire codes were easily ignored. 
inspections were merely formalities. By 1942, the Coconut Grove had tripled its size and was big enough that it ran along Piedmont Street, Shawmut Street, and Broadway Street. A new section of the club, called the New Broadway Lounge, had just opened earlier in November of 1942, and the club was more popular than ever. Saturdays were always packed at the Coconut Grove, and November 28, 1942, was no exception. Over a thousand people were in the club that had an occupancy limit of 460. That's never good. No, so it's more than double what it should have in there. Female impersonator Arthur Blake was the headliner for the evening. He liked to impersonate Eleanor Roosevelt and Betty Davis. I would have loved to have seen that. That would have been hilarious, I'm Me sure. Me too. Things at the Coconut Grove started ramping up at 10 o'clock. Everyone was having a great time. Cowboy celebrity Buck Jones was hanging with a group of war bond promoters in the terrace. The Melody Lounge was filled with the ivory tickling of pianist Goody Goodell. Can you imagine having that name, Goody Goodell? <laughs> I'm expecting that that was a stage name. I bet you love that, Kelly. Alliteration. Of course. A young soldier wanted to neck with his girlfriend in a corner, so he unscrewed the light bulb in the artificial palm tree near them. A busboy was told to go screw the light bulb back in, and unfortunately he had no flashlight, so he decided to light a match in order to see what he was doing. This busboy was 16-year-old Stanley Tomaszewski. He extinguished the match once he got the light bulb screwed in, but he didn't notice that some of the fake palm fronds had been lit with fire. At least, this was the claim of some witnesses. Later, Tomaszewski's actions could not be found to be the source of the fire. A couple waiters tried to douse the flames with water, but the fake palm fronds lit up across all the decor and the hanging satin, so imagine you got all that satin hanging from the ceiling, soon caught fire as well. This pulled the fire up the staircase into the main part of the nightclub. A Marine named Don Lauer jumped up with the knife and tried to cut the fabric free from the ceiling to prevent the spread. Flames dripped from the ceiling down onto patrons and everyone in the basement ran for the stairway. Clothing and hair caught fire. 400 people tried to climb the stairs while at the same time the fire climbed the ceiling. The stairs were soon jammed with people. Patrons upstairs got a taste of the fire when a fireball burst through the front entryway and spread through the jumble of dining rooms and lounges. Thick smoke filled the club. Only five minutes had passed from the first flames being spotted in the basement to the entire nightclub being engulfed in flames and smoke. There was only one exit, and that one exit, unfortunately, had a single revolving door. So you can imagine that within seconds, that exit was useless as bodies piled up in the door and jammed it. There was enough air coming through the door to pull the fire through the door, so trapped patrons in the doorway were incinerated. Firefighters couldn't even get near the door until they doused it with water. And there also was no way for the firefighters to get into the building. All doors were either locked or opened inward, so with the crush of bodies, those doors were not going to open. Hundreds could have been saved had those doors simply opened outward. People from buildings around the nightclub raced to help. Another issue with the evening was that it was freezing outside. Water froze on the ground and made hoses hard to move. 
Burn victims with scorched lungs died immediately upon coming outside and breathing the cold air. By 11.02, the fire was a five-alarm fire. The fire was out within 30 minutes after it started. This was very, very fast. Firefighters were left with the horrible task of removing bodies. When they went through the building, they found some victims still sitting at their tables with drinks, having been overcome with smoke quickly. The basement was surprisingly not very burned since the flames just traveled across the ceiling. Many bodies in the club were found burned beyond recognition. One woman was found in a phone booth dead, still holding the phone. Hospitals all around Boston were swamped with the dead and living. Doctors triaged as best they could. They were thankfully prepared for this kind of tragedy because they'd all been trained for the World War. Boston City Hospital received 300 bodies, with 168 people dead on arrival. Massachusetts General Hospital received 114 bodies, with 75 already dead. There were even living people sent to the morgues who were found to be alive and sent to hospital. So they were having a hard time trying to figure out who's living, who's dead. It was a chaotic scene. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, Mother's Day is coming up. Oh my gosh, that's right. We have the perfect gift for a mother. Yes, indeed. Your shopping worries are over. All you need is StoryWorth. We gave StoryWorth to my mother one year, and it has been such a gift to the entire family, not just for her. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your mom connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years to come. And it's not just for moms. You can get it for your dad, your grandmother, your grandfather, brothers, sisters, whoever. Every week, StoryWorth emails your mom a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought of, like, what did you read as a child? Did you have a job while you were in high school? What are your favorite possessions and why? And you can also ask your own unique questions. And one of the cool things is I never knew how my mom got her name, which is Annette. Apparently it is French, and my grandparents, their last name was Voisem, and that's also French and German, so they wanted a French name for my mom, so... That's how she got Annette. Her brother was named Daniel, and her sister was named Jeanette. So they were Anne, Dan, and Jan. Look, Kelly, don't you just love that? It's like almost like your alliteration. It's adorable. I love it. We really enjoyed reading my mom's answers to those. They would email the questions to her. She would respond to them, and then we would get an email also so that we got to know what she answered for them. Then after the year, it compiles all the questions, all the answers into a wonderful, beautiful keepsake book that the whole family can share for generations. And we just love looking through this one. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash history goes bump. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash history goes bump to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash history goes bump. The youngest victim of the fire was 15-year-old Eleanor Ciampa. In total, 492 people died in the fire, making this the second deadliest nightclub fire in American history. This was just a horrific event with the worst in people being brought out. 
Many people had been trampled to death. So it's not like everybody was just overcome with smoke or burned. A lot of people were just trampled or crushed against the doors and stuff. Bodies that were laid out on the sidewalks were robbed of their valuables. That's horrible. I just can't even. This number, you look at 492 and you go, oh my God, that is horrible. But when you think there was a thousand people in there, I'm surprised that it was just that amount of people, 500. There were 130, I believe, that were burned or injured. But I'm like, I'm surprised it wasn't pretty much everybody because how anybody got out of there alive is just amazing. Actor Buck Jones was severely burned and died a couple days later in the hospital. Even though he didn't own the club anymore, bandleader Alpert was performing that evening. He managed to escape, but the music director, Bernie Fazioli, and several members of the band died. Much of the staff survived as they were in more protected areas with access to windows, and they knew the layout of the club better. Several kitchen workers closed themselves in the walk-in cooler. Another of the survivors was Ruth Strogoff. She and her husband, Hyman, were regulars at the Melody Lounge. They had made it to the stairs quickly but were pulled apart from each other, and Hyman was pushed down to the floor and trampled to death. Ruth had tried to pull him up, but her hat and jacket caught fire, so she rushed upstairs and rolled on the floor to put the flames out. She ran outside, forced to leave her husband behind. Matt Lane got to the stairs and used the railing to pull himself forward up over people. He had to leave behind his friend, Don Lauer. That was the Marine who'd cut the burning fabric from the ceiling, so he ended up perishing in this. The men had become separated, and Don wouldn't make it out alive. The bartender for the Melody Lounge, Daniel Weiss, made it to safety, as did pianist Goody Goodell. They soaked napkins in water and held them up to their faces as they laid on the ground. They crawled to the kitchen and escaped through a window. A patron named Don Jeffers managed to get to the kitchen and went into the refrigerator with employees. When he got in there, he could hear them hollering, you know, come over here. So they guided him over to the walk-in. Charles and Peggy Disbrow got to the kitchen and found a boarded-up window that they managed to pull the boards from, and even though the outside was blocked by a pipe, they managed to get out. Several other people followed them, and they ended up running through the back door of an apartment building, which led them through Margaret Foley's apartment. Margaret watched as nearly 50 people made their way through her apartment. So I imagine she's sitting there watching TV. Probably. Probably hearing all the sirens, maybe even, she might have even gotten up to look outside, like, what is going on? And all of these people just come flying through our apartment. A male patron got to two large windows on Broadway Street that had glass block. He tried to break through and managed to make a hole big enough for him to start through, but he became stuck. Firefighters had to watch helplessly as he burned to death. This reminds me of the Upstairs Lounge episode that we did. It does. Joyce Spector was pulled to safety by somebody who tossed her down on the sidewalk. She was soon joined by several other survivors. Her fiancé, Justin Morgan, wasn't one of those people. Newlyweds John O'Neill and Claudia Nadal O'Neill died celebrating their union. Their best man and maid of honor died as well. Something good that came from the tragedy was advancing the care of burn victims for the future. The charts developed from this are still used today. 
Some victims were the first to be given penicillin. The investigation into the fire would reveal that there was criminal action involved. Boston's Fire Commissioner Arthur Riley convened a series of public hearings to determine the cause of the fire, and more than 100 witnesses were interviewed. The inquest revealed that club owner Barney Walonsky was at fault for much of what happened. He had locked doors, skipped safety measures, and paid off public officials. An inspector for the fire department, Lieutenant Frank Linney, had gone through the building eight days before the fire and passed pretty much everything, and even wrote that there were no flammable decorations and that there were plenty of exits. One person who may have been at fault owned up to what he did, and that was 16-year-old Stanley Tomaszewski. He testified that he had lit the match to see what he was doing and that he thought he had stomped out the match properly, but he couldn't be sure that it hadn't started the fire. And this clearly was what started it all. His life was threatened, and he had to be put under protective guard. Ten indictments were handed down, and Barney Walonsky was found guilty on 19 counts of manslaughter. I'm surprised it was only 19. Right. Should have been 492. He was sentenced to 12 to 15 years in prison, but just three years into serving his sentence, and this is what you got to say is karma, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. The mayor of Boston quietly pardoned him, and he died nine weeks after his release. Stanley Tomaszewski was scarred by the tragedy, but did manage to go to college, marry, have kids, and live to the age of 68. The burned-out shell of the Coconut Grove was demolished in September of 1945. For years, part of the footprint of the club was just a parking lot. Surrounding streets were reconfigured to allow for the construction of the Boston Radisson Hotel and Theater Complex. Today, the hotel that is here is called the Revere Hotel, obviously inspired by Paul Revere. In 2015, a condominium building was built at 25 Piedmont Street. The club had been at 17 Piedmont Street, so parts of the condos are in the club's footprint as well. All that is left of the terrible tragedy is a small bronze plaque with the Coconut Grove's floor plan and the following words. In memory of the more than 490 people who died in the Coconut Grove fire on November 28, 1942, as a result of that terrible tragedy, major changes were made in the fire codes and improvements in the treatment of burn victims, not only in Boston but across the nation. Phoenix out of the ashes. This was prepared by the Bay Village Neighborhood Association. The plaque was crafted by Anthony P. Mara, the youngest survivor of the Coconut Grove fire. They embedded it in the sidewalk in 1993, so it took them until 1993 to even make a memorial there. It's been moved several times, a lot of controversy over all the moving, and there are plans to build a bigger and proper memorial. Hopefully it gets done. I mean, this was a pretty major event in our history, and the fact that it's just this thing that people walk over is pretty pretty chilling. Most victims of the fire have moved on in peace, but some spirits have remained. Employees of the Boston Radisson claim to have had experiences. Some saw what they came to realize were apparitions, but at the time they looked like fully alive people. They seemed out of place as they were disheveled and looked confused. Some of these spirits would appear out of nowhere and then disappear just as quickly. Odd noises have been heard like loud popping sounds. There are weird flashes of light and the scent of smoke. The Stewart Street Playhouse had been the Radisson's theater and hosted five ghosts from the fire. 
The quiet, shadowy figure of a man was seen walking down a hallway or was sometimes seen in a doorway. He would fade away if approached. People hear disembodied voices, and sometimes they would hear their names being called. Water was very haunted here. There was a sound of water when no water was running. Faucets would turn themselves on by themselves. And one of the more bizarre stories claims that employees found a seat completely soaked in the auditorium with no discernible cause. There has been flooding in the building, again without an actual cause for that to happen. A woman named Wendy Reardon told Sam Baltruis in his 2012 Ghost of Boston book that when she visited the location of the former Coconut Grove that was, at the time, a parking lot, I went into the parking lot and just stood there. And the sadness, it wasn't only the sadness I felt, though. It was shock and surprise, like we were just having a great time, now it's an inferno, and now it's burning. More surprise than anything. Jacques Cabaret is located at 79 Broadway Street. In 1942, this location was a straight bar that had opened in 1938. The night of the fire, this location was turned into a temporary morgue, and bodies were laid out side by side in rows as they waited for identification and transport. Eventually, this location became a gay bar, mainly for lesbians in the 1960s and 1970s, and then it became the Cabaret Bar. A former bartender said, Spooky stuff happened there all the time. One of those strange things happened to him. He was closing things up late one night, and he left the bar area to collect some supplies. And when he returned, he found bodies lying in long rows on the floor. What? I can't even imagine what that'd be like. The lights were very dim, so he flipped on the brighter overhead lights, and the bodies disappeared. An employee at Jacques wrote in 2015, I work at Jacques, and we do shows downstairs. When I'm there alone, I swear I hear and see things. It's spooky. When it's dark and I'm at work early or late, I'm always saying, not tonight, ghost people, not tonight, as I run through the dark. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Patrons at the Coconut Grove went from celebrating and partying and enjoying themselves in one moment to abject horror in another. Hundreds died, maybe before they even knew what was happening. It isn't surprising that some of their energies are either stuck or clinging to the location of their deaths. Is the site of the former Coconut Grove haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, this is one of those places that they never took us by when I did the ghost tour in Boston. Would have been a great place to say something about it. And I'd love to know about people moving into these condos. Surely they're going to have some stuff going on there. I would imagine. I don't know how we'd ever find out unless we stood outside and asked people as they came out. <laughs> Anything strange going on in there? Excuse me, can I interview you? I think when I was looking at pictures, they have renamed one of the shorter streets that would have bordered the Coconut Grove, Coconut Grove Parkway or something. So they are trying to honor it a little bit in that way, too. Well, that's good. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We want to thank Margaret for her wonderful email, and we appreciate the invite as well. Yes, indeed. And for people who... Follow us on Facebook and such. You know that on top of the stuff that we're dealing with with our dads, that uh, the heavens decided to open up and punish us as well this week. And well, I don't know that it was gauged just at us. Our whole neighborhood <laughs> got pummeled. I wasn't so sure that it could actually hail in Florida, but even if it did, it wouldn't be big. 
So when they sent us out a warning that we could be getting golf ball sized to baseball sized hail, we were like, really? Well, we found out the hard way that yes, indeed, you can get that kind of sized hail and it can destroy a lot of your property. So we have thousands of dollars in damage to our home and our property that we're trying to wade through all of that as well. So just looking for more positive thoughts to come (laughs) our way. But we're okay and the animals are okay and that's what matters. That is what matters. We were huddled in our master bedroom closet because that's all we got for protection. and Praying away. Praying and praying. (laughs) Please God, just make it go away. So now when people tell me about scary locations and Kelly, we always say, oh, these places aren't all that scary. You're going to have to do a hell of a lot to scare us because (laughs) that being in the middle of that hailstorm, just I think it was only lasted maybe 10 minutes, although it felt like a lifetime. It was positively terrifying. I've never heard anything like it or experienced anything like it other than maybe people who've been through tornadoes. It was so loud. It just sounded like the gods were throwing buckets of boulders on our house. It was it was awful. Yeah, it was pretty intense to be sure. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. First, we want to welcome back Amber Rickard. We're going to be putting you back in your chest tomb. And welcome to the cemetery, Margaret Ward. We'll be putting you in a chest tomb as well. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really could not produce this show without our executive producers. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. Thank you so much for joining the Spooktacular. However, a recent re-examination of this fortuitous, fuzzy, albeit funky find uncovered a far more fascinating story. Could you get any more F's into that line? I tried really, really hard. (laughs) Even your alliteration. Ten indictments were handed down and Barley will... Barley? He's a Barley Barney.